RadioInfluence.com. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It does help us out greatly. And always check us out on social media. We try to put a lot of good content up there. Tuesdays, we put tips up. Uh, Fridays is Fact Friday. And uh, we mix some case or no case in there back from the TV days and uh, really some other interesting things. So please go ahead and check those things out and uh, you know follow us all along the way. And today brings us to uh, somewhat of a sad day, if you will. And by the time... You all, you all are hearing this. Uh, the news has been out for some time. But uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and she was a Supreme Court justice. So I'd like to dedicate the show today to talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, RBG, uh, as known somewhat in pop culture. And kind of amazingly, uh, she is a Supreme Court justice, has been somewhat of a pop culture icon, if you will. Uh, that might be over-exaggerating it slightly, uh, calling her an icon in pop culture, but uh, in, an a- in, in an area where you don't typically see people become well-known or icons in any way, shape, or form, I would say that uh, it's not an oversell to call her a pop culture icon. Uh, I can tell you sitting here today, I couldn't name uh, another active Supreme Court justice. Um, that's just kind of how it is. And, and I work in the business and I sometimes read Supreme Court opinions. Uh, and in all those opinions, whatever justice wrote the opinion or whatever justice wrote the dissent, their name is on there. So um, for her to be as well known as she was, I think that's a testament to some of the things that she has done over time. So let's get a little background on RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And uh, I think we'll call her RBG for the rest of the show because Ruth Bader Ginsburg is uh, kind of a mouthful. So we will uh, get into this here and we'll talk a little bit about the Supreme Court as a whole and, uh, you know, look at what she was and what the Supreme Court is and, and what their role is. So just a little background on the Supreme Court. All right. Number one, their justices are appointed for life. Okay, Uh, so the idea being that they can't be swayed by political pressures. They don't have to worry about reelection. That is the thought process behind it. Now, how does a Supreme Court justice leave office? Well, the the two people that are involved here that are going to interrelated for the rest of history show us how. You either retire, which Sandra Day O'Connor did, and then RBG replaced Sandra Day O'Connor. All right. The second way is you pass away. All right. So those are your two varieties of how you leave the Supreme Court. Uh, I believe there is a provision where you can be removed uh, for some pretty gross misconduct, uh, but I think it has to be pretty bad. Uh, But that's all constitutional and kind of beyond the scope, if you will. There's a little lawyer talk for you beyond the scope. Uh, Everything that we do is uh, within the scope of what we're talking about and uh, everything has to be relevant. And that's how we work our our days and cases. So we're going to keep things within the scope, if you will. The Supreme Court is part of the judicial branch of the United States government. So what the role of the judicial branch is, is to interpret the laws. So the job of the Supreme Court is to interpret the laws. Okay. Now, Things don't generally just go straight to the Supreme Court. There are steps that take to get it there, okay? There are lower-level courts, 
there are what we call trial courts to begin with, and then there are appellate courts, and then you have the Supreme Court. And that is what we call case law. Okay, so when we're talking about when a trial court case gets up to the appellate court and then the appellate court up to the Supreme Court, those rulings that the appellate court makes and the Supreme Court makes are what's called case law. All right. Uh, Most states, all states are set up with that appellate process and the Supreme Court. I believe every state in the union calls their highest court the Supreme Court and the federal court, which is the federal Supreme Court, which is what RBG was a part of, they are essentially the supreme rulers of the land, if you will. Okay. Uh, they make the final decisions. There's no higher court. So if you don't like something the Supreme Court does, you have no other avenue. Uh, if you don't like something the, the appellate court does, you can move up to the Supreme Court. Uh, same thing with trial court. If you don't like what the trial court does, you can move up to the appellate court. If you don't like what the appellate court does, you move up to the Supreme Court. So that's how it typically works. All right. Generally speaking, okay, the the majority of cases that Supreme Courts see, majority, okay, keep that in mind. It's not, I'm not talking every single one, uh, but a lot of the cases that Supreme Courts see are you have district courts of appeals and the you have two different decisions on similar topics by different appellate courts. And so you have uh, results coming in that are, are different within uh, a, a, a given area. Okay. And we want the law to look the same, right? Uh, so if we take it on a state level, we're in Florida, we're in Hillsborough County. All right. We're a part of the second DCA. Uh, if the second DCA makes a ruling and say the fifth DCA makes a ruling on similar topics and we want to bring those together and go, Hey, you know, we want the state to have similar responses. Okay. It goes to the Supreme court. Same thing works, uh, really similar in the United States Supreme court. So that's, that's how that works. That's a little precursor on it. Let's also look at how Supreme court justices, are appointed. How do they get there? Okay. Uh, if we look at RBG, she wasn't a U.S. federal appellate court judge uh, before becoming United States Supreme Court justice. Justice and judge, by the way, are, are really just the same thing, it, kind of an elevated title, if you will, if you're on the Supreme Court. All right. How does it work? They are nominated by the President of the United States and then confirmed by the United States Senate. Now, this is in the U.S. Constitution. So, Dating all the way back to the 1700s, this is how it's been done, all right? And it's not political. It is just simply, this is how you do it. And it's really that simple. And if you have a Republican president and a Republican Senate, should be a pretty easy and quick process because president nominates and the U.S. Senate confirms. So let's look directly at RBG and let's get into her and her life and how she ended up on the Supreme Court. Now, I want to also keep in mind, she was, she's been around the Supreme Court for a long time. She's been part of a lot of decisions. Okay. Um, we're not going to get into every single decision she's been a part of, and it's not meant as a slight to any of decision, any of the decisions. Okay. I'm not making any, any inferences that one decision is more important than the other. Okay. My goal here is to 
hit some highlights and to hit some of the interesting pieces. Okay. Um, that's where we're going with this. So if I miss a case that to you is very important, it's not because I discounted the importance of it. It more has to do with the large amount of cases that she was a part of and just trying to hit some highlights and trying to hit some some things where she was maybe a little bit more involved in. Because what happens is, is you have nine Supreme Court justices, not every one of them writes the opinion. Okay. Um, so, and let's, let's talk about that real quick uh, as we give the overview. We have opinions and we have dissents. Okay. So you have an issue that goes to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court votes nine to nothing and in whichever way. So nine to nothing in favor of whatever law, let's say. And someone writes the opinion. What's the opinion? The opinion is what becomes the binding law. Okay. That becomes the case law, if you will. Now, let's say you have a decision that's eight to one or seven to two, five to four, any of those other pieces you're going to have what's called a dissent. And the dissent is the, I voted no for this, and here's why. Okay, do they have to write an opinion? on? Or do they have to write anything on their dissent? No, they can just simply dissent, okay? But most times, you're going to have, when there's an opinion and a dissent, you're going to have two people. All right. You're going to have the person writing the opinion and the person writing the dissent and the other justices justices, uh, essentially concur with either. And their names are listed out when you're reading the case law on it in terms of RBG uh, concurred on the opinion or RBG concurred on the dissent. All right. So just because you're part of it doesn't mean you're necessarily writing the the key pieces there. So that's why some may be left off. Okay. Other thing, kind of little interest of time here, if you will. So that's where we're going with this. So let's dive deep in and, and let's see who RBG was. And first off, she was the second of four women justices. All right. Which makes it even more interesting she replaced the first woman justice. Now, I mentioned it at the beginning of the program. Sandra Day O'Connor, first uh, U.S. Supreme Court female justice. All right. RBG, number two. RBG replaced Sandra Day O'Connor, who retired. Okay. So, so Sandra Day O'Connor left the bench because she retired. RBG was nominated by Bill Clinton in 1993. All right. So uh, she's been on the bench a decent amount of time, but uh, quite frankly, uh, I thought she had been on the bench a lot longer uh, based on kind of the popularity and the amount of decisions uh, she was a part of, okay? And, and excuse my lack of, um, you know, kind of knowing how long I was 11 when she was uh, nominated to the Supreme Court. So didn't really have too much of understanding what that all was and how that all worked other than, you know, your typical elementary school. There are three branches of government. So that's, that's how we look there as far as that goes. One of the first cases that has really come up and really in everything that I looked at, this case came up on every single piece of research that I did. So to me, possibly one of the most important decisions that came out there, uh, to me, I, I find a little bit of a personal tie-in and I, I know it's kind of weird to, to say that there's a tie-in there in a sense, but uh, it's the United States versus Virginia, okay? Uh, Virginia Military Institute. Now, I 
played ball at Western Carolina. And at that time, uh, we were part of the Southern Conference and Virginia Military Institute was also part of the Southern Conference. So we got to play them. Uh, we played them conference weekends. I, I think we played them home and away, if I remember correctly. It's been some time now. Uh, but I also remember being part of the uh, year that Virginia Military Institute uh, had not won a series against any of the conference teams. And we were the first one to hand them a series. I, we lost uh, two out of the three games and that was not fun. So that is my tie-in to Virginia Military Institute. So not only did I find this case in everything that I looked at, but uh, I guess I have a little affinity towards Virginia Military Institute. So what is Virginia Military Institute? Well, it's a public institution. And surprisingly, only about 15% of their cadets enter career military service. So it's really just, it's a college. That's what it is. And I always, always under the impression that it was a college meant for people going into the military, not, you know, I guess different from West Point and Air Force and those universities and Navy, right? But kind of a a side piece to those other ones, but surprisingly only 15% of their cadets uh, enter military service. Now here's the thing, public university, only 15% actually enter military service. It was an all male institution. Okay. Uh, It was, it no longer is. Okay. And it was RBG who authored the court's opinion. So remember the court's opinion is what the court's ruling was. So this, her opinion that she wrote ended Virginia Military Institute's single sex admission policy. So in other words, because of that opinion, women were now allowed to enter Virginia Military Institute and the court's ruling and and what RBG spoke to was VMI's rigorous educational model and philosophy of producing citizen soldiers. So we're not talking about an institution that's providing soldiers, and I am by no means whatsoever getting into any kind of debate of male and female in the military. That is not what I'm getting at. We are solely talking about VMI, uh, and that quote that I had just read was straight from the opinion. Okay, so allowing women to to attend VMI surely makes sense. Okay, in 2020, it clearly makes sense. Um, I'm not sure at what point it it didn't make sense for that to be the thing, um, but you know I, it, that's that's where we were at that time. And to quote RBG, surely that goal is great enough to accommodate women who today count as citizens in our American democracy, equal in stature to men. Okay, so that was RBG's ruling, and seemingly one of the more uh, famous uh, opinions of of hers. Now, as we look through some of these things, we're going to find a kind of a, a, a common theme here, okay? RBG really pushed for women's rights, okay? And this next one, Ledbetter versus Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, she was on the losing side of that one, okay? Uh, and by losing side, she was on the dissent. And what this was about was about a female employee and that the female employee found that she was not making the same as her male counterparts. And really the crux of the issue came down to this. And and this is where we get into real kind of nitty gritty legal things is that, and, and trust me, I don't practice employment law. Okay. I do car crashes far, far different from employment law, but 
there's always statutes of limitation. There are generally rules about how long you have to bring a claim. And that was really the key point in this Ledbetter case was that there's a certain amount of time when there is discrimination in the workplace that you have to bring a claim under the Equal, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Okay. And really the crux of this case came down to, well, when did that time clock start? And the opinion of the Supreme Court was that it started the date that this female employee started, not when she necessarily figured out that she was making less than her male male counterparts. And in the dissent, they said that pay disparities are thus significantly different from adverse actions, such as termination, failure to promote, or refusal to hire, all involving fully communicated discrete acts, uh, easy to identify as discrimination. Okay. And that came from another case. Now, sometimes the court will cite to other cases. All right. Now, as she gets into it, it is only apparent when the disparity becomes apparent and sizable. For example, through future raises calculated as a percentage of current salaries. Okay, so you see where we're going with this thing. And, and that was within the dissent written by RBG. And, and you know, the, the dissent isn't binding, okay? But sometimes we can use it in case law. So they can become important and strongly written dissents can become, you know, kind of an important thing for us as we work through some of our case law issues, uh, the controlling opinion is the opinion, right? The, the controlling piece of case law is the opinion. The dissent is not controlling. But if you can make your facts match up to that better than you can the opinion, you potentially can use it and you could potentially use it to win. All right. It's not generally very strong, but it does does it does serve some use. The the last case that we're gonna take a deep dive into for the podcast today is Shelby County versus Holder. Uh, Holder being, uh, or excuse me, Shelby County being in Alabama, Holder being the Eric Holder, uh, who was the attorney general at the time, uh, the attorney general of the state at the time. So this is what's been described as RBG's most famous dissent. And what is this case and why is it important? And actually, why is it pertinent for where we are right now or a couple weeks out from the presidential election? And this all has to do with voting rights. Uh, you may be able to think back and remember we had this uh, silly thing, the Civil War. I don't know. It was a long time ago. Uh, you may have heard of it. Um, and, and I'm not downplaying it. I, I, all kidding aside, it was a very serious thing. Uh, and it was, it was over very serious issues. Okay. Uh, but it had to do with states that had a track record of essentially discrimination, okay? And that's where kind of the Civil War tie-in comes in is think of the states that were uh, seceded from the Union. Uh, although I did find a couple of interesting states that are a part of this. What it is is it says if you've had discriminatory practices over the course of essentially your statehood and you want to make changes to your your voting process, you have to go to this committee within the federal government and they have to evaluate your changes and say, yes, you can make them or no, you can't because the federal government wanted to ensure that the voting rights for all were protected. Okay. And Shelby County came through and said, that's not constitutional. The United States government, the federal government does not have a right to do anything 
with voting rights. We as states have states' rights to make determinations of how we're going to set up voting. Okay. Um, kind of interesting topics there, right? Because, you know, kind of throwing out essentially legalese, we're talking about state rights. We're talking about the constitution. How does that all play in? Well, you kind of have to have to look back to why we left England, why the constitution was drafted and the theory and thought process and not from a partisan standpoint, just the theory and thought process was we're leaving England. England is an oppressive, large federal government. We are leaving a large federal government and we are going to empower states to make their own decisions. Now we're going to have a federal government that oversees those states, but there's essentially going to be some separation. There are going to be absolutes that states have rights over. Okay, that's the general concept, and I'm not getting into whether or not voting should fall into one or the other, because I think you could probably make an argument either way on that, right? Because yes, it's done by the states, but it is done in conjunction with the federal government. So having oversight, I can make an absolute argument either way. And clearly that's what we do as lawyers every day. Every every time I pick up a case, I'm not only looking at what my argument is and going to be, I'm also looking at what do I anticipate the other side's argument to be. So that's generally how we, how we look at that. But it ties into the Voting Rights Act. And that was the Voting Rights Act was where the federal government was coming in and saying, you want to make changes to your voting in your state? We are going to have a hand in it. We are going to make sure you're not discriminating. Now, the couple of states that I found interesting that I didn't realize would be part of something like this, uh, because it's mostly the Southern states, right? That was the tie-in with the Civil War is it deals mostly with Southern states. Uh, Texas and Arizona were also part of that as well. So kind of interesting there as that goes. But the Supreme Court's ruling actually struck down this provision of the Voting Rights Act, and gives the states the rights to make changes. And since then, actually, those states have made pretty sweeping changes to their voting laws. Um, now, whether that has had an impact, that's that's a question for another show, okay? Uh, because it would take a much deeper dive look and take away from what we're looking at today. What they had called it was preclearance, all right? So if they wanted to make a change, they'd have to go through this preclearance process. And I find this to be one of the most interesting quotes from RBG. Uh, now, she was part of the dissent. So remember, she was part of the side that lost. She wanted this Voting Rights Act, this provision within the Voting Rights Act to stay in place. Okay. Um, and without taking a deep dive look into the issues, I'm not making any determination one way or another as to whether it should stay or shouldn't have stayed. Okay. But Kind of a great quote here, uh, throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. And that was RBG in her dissent on that opinion. So uh, really like that one, uh, whether or not which side should have been the correct side. Hey, you know what? Question for another show because that, that could be a show in and of itself as taking a deep dive look into that opinion and how it got there and kind of the steps leading up to it. But I do like that, that the discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet.
you know, and maybe that's why she became a pop icon because, you know, rulings like that, that kind of bring into the common man, if you will, and, and, uh, or the common people, if you will, um, kind of tying it all in and not necessarily using legalese and just putting it all out there. Uh, some other interesting, uh, opinions that she was a part of just to kind of hit some of the high notes, uh, same sex marriage that is now allowed in all 50 states. She was part of that Supreme Court and Bush versus Gore. Uh, those of us in Florida, the hanging Chad vote. All right. She was part of that Supreme Court as well. Uh, another kind of little interesting thing, uh, because we are hearing so much about who should appoint and then the next Supreme Court justice. Should it be President Trump or should it be uh, either President Trump or uh, Joe Biden? depending on who wins the election. Now, a couple of things to kind of keep in mind, all right? There is an odd number of people on the Supreme Court, nine, okay? So you can't ever have a tie. If you have eight people making decisions, you could have a tie, right? So nine's a good number, right? Seven's a good number, right? 11 would be a good number, as long as it's odd, because you can't have a tie. The only uh, time you could essentially have a tie is if one of the justices recused himself from the opinion and that can happen um happens i can't say the last time i've i've seen um a justice to that but um uh, that's where we look as far as that goes now you know we look at a lot of five to four opinions and we hear i tend to think that there's a lot of them i went into this thinking that there were a lot of five to four opinions uh, but it actually turns out that five to four being that you know five on the winning side, whichever side it is, and four on the dissent side. So five on the opinion, four on the, the dissent. All right. And it's only about 15% of everything that the Supreme Court, do, Supreme Court does for opinions ends up in a 5-4. Uh, everything else is pretty overwhelming. So whether it has an impact, I don't know. Okay. And you know, we don't necessarily know what's in the pipeline for the Supreme Court that's coming up in the next few months. So keep in mind also, we have a general general election in November. President doesn't take office until January, okay? You could have a lot of decisions in that time. So for us on the legal side, I want what's ever best for the legal system, okay? What that is, kind of above my pay grade, if you will, because I don't necessarily get into constitutional law and what goes on in the Supreme Court my involvement with the Supreme Court is reading case law and the decisions that they make. Uh, RBG, one for the ages. Are we going to see another Supreme Court justice in our lifetime that has the influence and the pop culture tie-in that RBG did? Probably not. Okay, so RBG, one for the ages. And that is the show for today. Check us out on social media. Rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And, you know, quick moment of silence for RBG and Lawfather out. This is a Landry Football Quick Fix on Radio Influence. A lot of discussion about Tom Brady in his performance week one. A lot of panic. Oh, he's lost it. He's not as good. Let me tell you what the tape says. The tape says... Um, he still has the ability to throw the football. Um, the issues that regardless what the head coach may say or not or whatever, whose fault or whatever, the, the mistakes, the turnovers, certainly Brady is culpable. He's part of that. The issues 
come about with side adjustments, with your ability to be able to read a coverage and have your receivers read the coverage and you to see it the same way. See, it doesn't work if I see the coverage correctly and the receiver doesn't. Because I know where to go with the ball and the receiver doesn't, then the ball's at the wrong place and then it's picked. Could be communication issues of you didn't communicate what you saw to the receiver well enough, so he didn't know where to go there. So again, it's not about point and blame publicly. Internally, it's about getting everybody to see things the same way and understand what they're seeing and adjusting to it accordingly. I think it'll be a pretty good season for them, and I think the offense will be better. Well, how long is it going to take, Chris? How many games does it take for that to be figured out? This is not a cookie cutter. It takes this many snaps and this many games. It depends in every situation. It's unique. Exactly how much of what you're trying to put in. You can only put in your offense as much as your weakest link can pick up. How long does it take for somebody to learn something? Guys, I don't know. I mean, the experience level of the players involved, the complexities of what you're trying to teach are a factor. And those things have a tremendous impact on how long it will take to get certain things done. The Landry Football Podcast with veteran scout and coach Chris Landry can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.